Jesus loves me. This I know. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This I know. You've got it. On the sixth day, our God said, Let us make man in our image and in our likeness. And he made them male and female. He created them and he said, It's very good. This I know. But Adam and Eve rebelled against God. They did an act that God had warned them would bring certain death. This I know. And like our ancestors before us, we too have rebelled against God. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. This I know. But God who is rich in mercy sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, that whosoever believeth in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. This I know. He was crucified, died, and buried. This I know. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead. He appeared to over 500 people. This I know. He ascended into heaven. He sits at the right hand of God the Father. This I know. And one day, a day that we know not, he's going to return to judge the living and the dead. To those on his right, he's going to say, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom of heaven prepared for you since the creation of the world. And to those on his left, he's going to say, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. This I know. Because God has revealed these things to us, the scripture says you and I are without excuse. None of us can say, I didn't know. We know. The Bible tells us so. And, and what I can tell just from our, our quick little uh, experiment here is that many of us place a tremendous amount of faith in the words of this book, in the words of this Bible, the, the 66 different books that have all been collected together in the Old Testament and the New Testament Many of us believe so strongly in these words that we are trying to order our lives according to them, very imperfectly. But you know what? The, the Bible also gives us the answer to that. When we sin and we stumble, the scripture says, if I confess my sins, he's faithful and just to forgive me and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. This I know. So with so much on the line, it needs to be asked, is this book, are these scriptures really worthy of our trust? Is it worthy of the trust that you are giving it? Would you join me as we pray for the reading of God's word? Father God, you 
Call us to pay attention to your word as to a light shining in the darkness. We ask that you would illuminate our hearts and our minds with your truth. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you. Our rock and our redeemer, we pray this in your name. Amen. This morning we're continuing our sermon series 316, The Numbers of Hope. We're looking at five distinct verses in the New Testament that all have the citation 316, and we're taking a deep dive on those verses. Uh, we passed out cards last week. If you didn't get them, uh, there's a stack of them on the welcome desk. If you want more, there's a stack on the welcome desk. Grab them, put them in a place where you're going to see them. You can have multiple uh, cards all throughout your house because the challenge uh, that I'm presenting is to memorize these verses. Now, last week we started with Colossians 3.16. And I've already talked to a number of you that, that you got into it and you found really quickly this memorization thing is hard. <laughs> and, and you've got pieces of it, but maybe not all of it. Is there anybody here who feels so confident that I've got the whole thing that I, I could recite it? Really? All right, we've got work to do. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. And as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. It's a lot easier when someone else leads. It's like, oh, yes, yes, I do know that. I want to encourage you to keep working on it. Don't give up on it. The reason we do word perfect and not just an idea is because it forces you to meditate on it day and night. It's the only way you're going to get it. You're not going to get it by just glancing at the card every once in a while. It's going to require you actively sitting down and working on it. And so I want to encourage you to do that. Today we're moving on to the next 316, and that's 2 Timothy 316. All scripture is God-breathed. And is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. We're going to add verse 17. So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So like we did last week, before we dive deep on this, this verse, we're going to pull back and we're going to look at the broader context. This comes from a second letter that Paul wrote to Timothy. And in order to understand Timothy, we need to to step back two generations. We need to go back to a woman named Lois. Lois is Timothy's grandmother. And what we read in Timothy is that Lois loved God. Now we don't know if she was a, a Jew or if she was a Jewish believer, if she had yet to, to place her faith in Christ. I think she might have been one of the very first generations of people to, to have placed their faith in Christ. But she loved God, she loved the word of God, uh, and she had a daughter. And her daughter's name was Eunice. And so Lois, because she loved the Lord, she understood that it was her responsibility that God was giving her, entrusting to her, this precious little girl, Eunice. And so Lois did everything that she could to raise Eunice up in the faith. And part of that was sharing with Eunice the word of God. 
Now, one thing that would have never come from, from Lois's lips is something that I often hear today, and that is this idea that I don't want to make any decisions for my children. Like, I, I want them to be free to choose for themselves. If they want to come to church, that's something that they need to choose to do. You know, if they want to, be pr if they want to pray, that's something that they need to do because we want it to be genuine. If Lois were to hear that idea, I think she would say, well, that maybe is not a good idea. You see, Lois understood that God had entrusted Eunice to her care. It was Lois's responsibility to raise Eunice in the ways of the Lord. And so she did that. And then Eunice grew up. And we learn in Acts chapter 16 that Eunice married a man who was a Greek. So what we don't know was whether or not he was a believer. He was a Gentile. He may have been a believer. He may not have. And assuming that he wasn't, that meant that, that it fell on Eunice to impart the faith to their, their son that they had together, young Timothy. And Eunice did that. Everything that her, her mother had done for her, she now did for Timothy. She raised Timothy up to know the Lord and love the Lord, and she shared with Timothy, she imparted to Timothy the word of God. By the time Paul gets acquainted with Timothy, Timothy is all well along the, the path of discipleship. He's far along that path because of his grandmother Lois and because of his mother Eunice. And so then Paul becomes acquainted with Timothy, and they, they travel together, and Paul begins to disciple Timothy. Paul trusts Timothy so much that he puts him in charge of the church in Ephesus. Timothy is a young man. This is a tremendous amount of responsibility to give a young man. But because of his upbringing, because the word is rich in Timothy, he's equipped for the task. And Paul says to him, because Timothy's kind of wavering, like, I don't know if I can do this. Paul says, Timothy, don't let anybody look down on you because you're young. Set an example for the believers in life, in speech, in love, in faith, in purity. Timothy, the word of Christ is rich in you. Yes, the, the job of planting a church and, and leading a church and pastoring a church is complex. And I'm writing these two letters to you to help navigate that road of, of leading the church. But Timothy, you can do this. And so we come to the second letter, and we come to the passage that, that we're looking at today. And I'm just going to back up two verses to verse 14. Paul writes to Timothy, As for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it. He's talking about his grandmother and his mother. You, you were raised in this. You know those from whom you learned it. And how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures. Isn't that amazing? I picture Lois and Eunice singing uh, Jesus songs and singing the word of God with, with baby Timothy. And he's just being raised in this context where the word is just part of of his life. You've known these scriptures since infancy, which are able to make you wise for salvation. The good work that began with your grandmother Lois that was handed down to Eunice and has now been handed down to you, Timothy, continue in it. Don't stop. 
keep going. And then comes this verse, which has so much significance for us as believers. The verse answers the question, why do we place so much trust in these scriptures? All scripture is God-breathed. All scripture is God-breathed. Why was Lois so determined to share with Eunice the word of God? Why was Eunice so determined to share it with Timothy? Why was Paul willing to give his life to proclaim the word of God? It's not because this is a, a good manual with some, some good ideas in it on how to lead a better life. It's not because this is a real great philosophy to order your life by. It's not because there's some good principles in here. It's not because this is the most important book ever written in Western civilization, and in order to be an educated adult, you ought to know it. It's not because this is so entertaining and such a page-turner. It's because it's the inspired word of God. God breathed for us. Peter said the same thing. He said, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. Prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, Peter wrote. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Bible is not man's word. It's God's word through man. God used the, the, the vocabulary of different men, used the idiosyncrasies, used the language, used the voice of those men, but it was his word, God breathed through them. So if there is a God, and we believe obviously there is, the challenge for every single person here is how do we know God? How can I know God? And the only way that you and I can know God is if God chooses to reveal himself to us. There's no other way we're going to know God. He's got to reveal himself to us. We're not going to find him. He's got to reveal himself to us. And so he's done that. The, the reformers said it this way. They said, God has given us two books in order to reveal himself to us. And the first book is the book of creation. God has given us eyes to see and ears to hear and fingers to touch and noses to smell, and he's placed us in this amazing world and said, observe. And as we observe this incredible world, we see the majesty of God. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was in Tucson, Arizona at this resort that was at the base of the Catalina Mountains, and, and we were facing west uh east and so when the sun set it cast this incredible orange hue over the entire landscape of the mountains it was majestic and in that scene it was breathtaking i saw the majesty of god god has given us creation and creation points to the creator in the same way that it, we would walk in here and look at this sanctuary and look at the design of it nobody would say this just happened these pews just kind of fell out of the sky and assembled themselves in this perfect symmetry. Of course, there was a, a designer. There was a creator. Creation points to a creator. Design points to a designer. So God has given us this book, but it's not sufficient. 
creation, what we call general revelation, it's not sufficient. Because of the fall, everything's been corrupted. The world's been corrupted. You and I have been corrupted. We look through eyes that have been corrupted. And so things that testify to God, about God, they also testify about chaos. Sometimes the, the majestic mountains quake. Sometimes the, the peaceful river floods. Sometimes that cool breeze becomes a tornado and destroys. Sometimes the warmth of a flame burns down an apartment building. Sometimes the oceans roar. Someday the scripture says the lion will lay down with the lamb, but right now the lion's probably going to eat the lamb. So to know God, we need more than general revelation, because general revelation is confusing. It testifies that there is a God, but, but it doesn't tell us much more than that. He's majestic. He's He's in control, he's, he's sovereign, but we need to know more. We need a revelation that takes into account the, the fall and that the creation has been corrupted and that we've been corrupted. We need a special revelation, and so God has given us a second book, the Bible. Whereas in creation, God speaks in broad strokes, in the scripture, God speaks with words, specific words. In our remaining time together, I want to take you on a journey 504 years back from this day. The day is October 31st. The year is 1517. We call this today Reformation Day because of what happened 504 years ago. A man named Martin Luther is a Catholic monk and he's serving as a professor of theology at University of Wittenberg. Martin Luther is a scholarly man, and because he is, he has the extreme rare privilege of being able to read the scriptures in their original languages. He can read the Greek, he can read the Hebrew, he can read the Latin. And as Luther becomes more and more acquainted with the Word of God, what he begins to observe is that some of the things that the Catholic Church are teaching and promoting simply don't line up with Scripture. Now, it was a dangerous thing back then to challenge the church, to challenge the Pope, because the church and the state were, were one and the same. So to go against the church was to go against the state. It was a daring thing. It wasn't something that he did lightly. But it all came to a head one day when, when Johann Tetzel, this Catholic priest, was in charge of a capital campaign. The, the Catholic church was building these beautiful, majestic cathedrals, which required a ton of money. And so they're figuring, how are we going to do this capital campaign? Johann Tetzel had an idea. The Catholics taught uh, an idea of purgatory, that when you die, you don't immediately go to heaven, you go to, to purgatory, and you have to be purged of all of your sins, which was not a pleasant thing, before maybe you get to go to heaven. And so Johann Tetzel came up with this idea, let's sell indulgences, which was a special piece of paper, I don't know if it was signed by the Pope, but authorized by the Pope, 
that if you purchased an indulgence, you could escape purgatory and go directly to heaven, or a loved one who is already dead and in purgatory, you could buy their way to heaven. It was a get-out-of-jail card, but it wasn't free. It came with a tremendous price. But if you're a loved one and, and someone, your grandma, has just died and, and you believe she's in purgatory, how much are you willing to pay to get her to go to, to heaven immediately and escape the torment of purgatory? Pretty much anything. And so it worked, and all the money came into the, the coffers. And Johann Tetzel had this little jingle, uh, the moment a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. People are being extorted. Martin Luther observes what's happening and says, wait a second. Something's not right here. Like him, you and I, when, when I share this, you're probably thinking, that's crazy. Like, were they so naive? How did, how did the people let themselves get duped like that? I mean, isn't it obvious what was going on? But here's the thing. The reason you and I understand that th that's absurd is because we have the scripture. And we know that these ideas are absolutely not biblical. And furthermore, we've been raised in a tradition where you don't just accept what somebody says just because they're in a position of authority. You get to check it against the word of God. But they didn't have that. They didn't have the scripture in their language. And they're raised in a tradition where the Pope is infallible, which means he's incapable of making a mistake or saying something that's, that's false. So anything that the Pope would say or endorse, it must be correct. So Martin Luther is brave enough to say that this isn't right. And so on October 31st, 1517, he takes pen to paper and he writes 95 reasons Theses, why the sale of indulgences was not biblical and was not a good idea. And he went and he nailed them to the door of a church, which was like their bulletin board. Well, you can imagine how, how the news of that circulated in the community. And, and in no time at all, the money slow, started slowing down and not coming into the coffers. That got the Catholic Church's attention. And Luther became enemy number one. But the fire of the Reformation had been lit. God raised up other godly people as well. The explosive idea of the Reformation is simply this. The scripture is clear enough for ordinary Christians to understand and, and apply without the need for a classical education. You don't need to know Greek and Hebrew. Without the need for theological expertise, you don't need a master's degree. Without the need for clerical guidance, you don't need a, a priest or a bishop or a pope. Without ecclesiastical tradition, without the church telling you what is so. The scripture is clear enough for ordinary Christians. Again, to us, that might seem like a yawn. But at the time, this was revolutionary. The Bible in the hands of people in a language that they can understand, Luther would said, is a good thing. And we ought to do it. So now we move to England. In England, there, there was a death penalty. I didn't know this. There was a death penalty 
for anyone found with an unlicensed possession of Scripture. And so God raises up a man named William Tyndale, who believed, like Luther, that the Scripture needs to be in the hands of the ordinary Christian. And he translates from the original Hebrew and Greek Testaments, he translates it into an English translation. By the providence of God, at the same time in history, Johannes Gutenberg has just invented the printing press. And so now this English translation has the benefit of being able to be duplicated, duplicated quickly and distributed to the people. Tyndale is now living his life on the run. Five years later, he's caught, he's executed by strangulation, and he's burned at the stake. His crime? Translating the scripture into English. God raves up this wave of reformers, John Calvin, Ulrich Zwingli, Theodore Beza, Gibo de Bray, and at the heart of the Reformation, again, is this simple conviction that the Bible is God-breathed, and ordinary Christians ought to have it in their language. Because the Scripture is God-breathed, one, it has authority. The Scripture has authority. It is to us from God. God's Word supersedes every other authority. Some people said it this way, what the Reformation did is it took the Pope off the throne and put the Word of God on the throne. Now, I'm a little uncomfortable with that idea because we don't worship the Word of God. That would be making it an idol. The worship of God, the, the, the Bible testifies to Jesus Christ. We worship Jesus Christ, but this is the revelation God has given us so that we know Jesus Christ. It has authority. The second thing is that the Bible is sufficient. Remember the first book, Creation, it wasn't sufficient by itself? God has given us a second book, and it is sufficient. Now, there is much that the Bible doesn't address. This idea that the Bible answers every question is simply false. It doesn't answer every question, which is what makes, you know, living today so challenging is we have to take the principles of Scripture and apply them to very complex situations and make wise decisions. It doesn't address every issue today, but everything that is required for lives of faith and godliness, everything that is required for salvation, all that we need to, to know, it is sufficient. There are no holes. There's no gaps. There's no missing information. Everything that we need to know is, is there. So for you all, I'm guessing, my argument today is pretty convincing. Yes, it is the inspired word of God. You've already signed on to that. You believe. But for the critic, for the skeptic, the argument today is not very convincing. It's like me saying, uh, I'm Spider-Man, and you ought to believe I'm Spider-Man simply because I say I'm Spider-Man. The Bible says it's the word of God, and so we should believe it's the word of God because it says it's the word of God. So the skeptic would ask, are there any other arguments as to why we should trust this? And there are. One of them is simply all of the prophecies that have come to pass. The Bible is filled with prophecies. And they've come to pass. And there's ones that we're still waiting for, and we have the confidence that they're going to come to pass. We believe that Jesus is going to return, as he said he would. 
So all of the prophecies are, are evidence for why this is the Word of God. Second, the Bible is filled with historical detail. It doesn't shy away from historical detail. We have the names of, of actual people. We have locations, archaeological details in the Bible, and every single one of them has been verified. It's not like some other books. Read the Book of Mormon. You know, they believe that Jesus came to, to earth, and it gives all of this historical detail of the United States, which is just ridiculous. Did I say came to earth? Came to the United States. They believe Jesus came to the United States. All of the archaeological detail has, has been shown to be accurate. Third, there's no other piece of scripture that has been under such assault as the word of God. I mean, for, for hundreds of years, people have tried to poke holes in this and, and, and shoot this down, and it's withstood all of those attacks. One of the most frequent attacks is that the word of God that you and I have today, it's changed over time. You know, with every translation, it's, it's changed from the original. Well, back in the 20th century, there was this amazing discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, all of these ancient manuscripts. And when they took those ancient manuscripts and they compared them to the translation that we're looking at today, what was remarkable was not how different they were. What was remarkable was like, it's the same thing. God has preserved the, the scriptures from the original in all of those translations. The, the greatest evidence is probably the least satisfying to the critic, but it might be the only evidence that actually converts them. Jesus said, if anyone chooses to do God's will, you'll find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. In other words, the proof is in the pudding. The word of God is self-authenticating. Once you dive in, once you swim around, it changes your life. The word of God is living and active, and it's transformative. This is the word of God. This I know. Join me as we pray. Lord, um, when we hear uh, what people have done who have gone before us so that we might have your word in our own language, it's humbling, Lord, and it's also convicting. Lord, it's convicting uh, that we don't pay more attention to it. It's convicting that um, it sits on our shelves and, and gets dusty. Lord, help us love your word. Lord, plant your word deep in our hearts, and I pray even this week as we work on committing this this verse and, and the Colossians verse to memory that you would plant uh, the truth of your word deep in our heart and that we would be transformed by it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.